The Christian in the Campus is a podcast of the Rebels for Christ Campus Ministry. The college campus is a world of competing stories vying for students' attention and allegiance. The goal of this podcast is to orient students towards Christ in this brave new world so that we can bring about a revolution of redemption on the University of Mississippi and Northwest Community College campuses. One, like, this is this is not a part of tonight's lesson, but just, like, one little kind of uh, nugget of encouragement I have for you is um, it's really easy at this point in the semester just to, like, try to get through it, right? Like, you know, let's just enter the grind, let's just push through, let's just get done with this thing. Um, and one thing that I've always found to be true is that God maybe works the most uh, drastically and the most um, profoundly towards the end of a semester, right? You may be done with this semester, Right? You may feel like it's over. You may feel like I'm just pushing through to the end. Or, or, or maybe you've kind of set yourself up to where you're just coasting towards the end. But, but know this great truth. God is not done with this semester. God is not done with this semester in your life. God is not done with this semester on the college campus. God is going to still be moving and shaking and bringing about his kingdom, whether we think he's through or not. Right? So that's just, my, that's just this free advice that I wanted to pass along to you. I'm at this point in the semester. And this is something I've always found to be true. I'm going to be honest. I think it gets exceptionally true during finals week. Uh, and you should study here during finals week because I think God's going to do some really fun things in terms of just building our community and yada, yada, yada. So with that said, tonight our text is Mark chapter 7, verses 24 through um, 30. Uh, I encourage you to you know, take out your Bible and take out your phones, get on your Bible app. And go ahead and turn there or scroll there. Um, it's a short story, uh, but it does contain actually one of the most controversial sayings of Jesus in uh, in all of the Gospels. Uh, it's, by the way, that's going to be verse uh, 28. Uh, my goal tonight is to simply just get us immersed inside of this text and then have us ask three questions. And those three questions are this. First, what do we learn about God? Second, what do we learn about humanity? And then three, what do we learn about the Christian faith as we immerse ourselves inside of this text, as we immerse ourselves inside of this story? But because this is a weird text, because this does have one of the, the, the more, like if, uh, it, you know, if you've ever seen like, you know, the hard sayings of Jesus list, like there's a you can look it up on Google, the Google, uh, I don't, never mind. Um, there's a rabbit hole I wanted to go down, but it would be totally non-important. Um, but if you look at one of those lists, the, the, verse 28 of chapter 7 of Mark, it always ends up on it. And, um, and because of that, I do want us to look about uh, around the, the text that's around this text that we're going to look at tonight. So if you remember last week, Ben Waycaster, um, the lesser Ben, taught on Mark chapter 7, uh, the first half, verses 1 through 23. Um, and this is just another one of Jesus' spats with the Pharisees. Um, and, and what the, the kind of spat is over is that these guys are totally committed to the, the law of the elders, right? Which is this kind of tradition that's been built up over time that they hold to, right? So the illustration that, that Waycaster so just horribly used is that if it would make you unclean to be inside of three feet of me, then Brinkerhoff, then the law of the elders would say you need to stay within seven feet of me just to be safe, right? It's this extra measure of just you know, making sure that you were ritually pure, right? Because that's a category that they had, this idea of needing to be richly pure so that you could approach, you could approach a holy God, all right? But um, Jesus was like, yeah, you may, you may have all these rules, you may keep them perfectly, but your hearts still have not been changed. And he calls them out, and he basically is like, you have this whole law that's set up, 
that is basically just like committing tax fraud, but instead of a tax fraud, it's like they don't have to take care of their parents anymore because they've set aside money for God. But instead of honoring their mother and father by taking care of their parents in their old age, they just hold on to the money and say that it's for God, right? You see the, the way they've twisted and manipulated religion for their own purposes, right? Instead of living into the Ten Commandments, the law of the elders is supposed to help you do anyways so that you can be richly pure and live inside the presence of a holy God, all right? So Jesus is calling them out on this. But it isn't just that, right? It isn't that just that Jesus like, you know, you know, you may hold all these laws, but you're dead inside. Your hearts haven't been transformed. It's not just that. But rather, if you remember the way Ben put it, Jesus here, and, and as he's been doing throughout this entire gospel, has been reversing an ancient equation, right? And that ancient equation is, anyone remember? Yes, clean plus unclean equals unclean. But Jesus turns that into clean plus unclean now becomes clean, right? When Jesus touches unclean things, right? He touches a leper. What happens? <coughs> leper gets healed. When Jesus, when the woman reaches out uh, who has who has bleeding, which would make her extremely unclean, she hasn't been able to go into the temple her in the past like 13 years, and she reaches out and touches Jesus, he's supposed to become unclean. But what actually happens? She is healed and she becomes clean, right? So Jesus is reversing this ancient equation. And we're about to see in our story a manifestation of that. One of the great, great movements happening inside the gospel is this movement of the Gentiles from being unclean to clean. People who couldn't associate with the Holy God to now people who could. Okay, so that's one of the things we're going to look at. The second, uh, the, this, so that's the story that comes before our text tonight. Quickly, uh, go ahead and look starting uh, in verse 31 of chapter 7. Um, I'm going to read the whole thing and just point out a couple things. This is the story that comes right after our text for tonight. Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went uh, through uh, Sidon down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of the, the Decapolis. Anyone remember when you hear the word Decapolis, what does it mean? Ten cities, ten cities right? Deca, ten, polis, cities. All right, why do we know this? Because Deca means ten. Yeah, yeah, no, but why, like, why, where have we run into this before? Anyone? Elise, why do we know this? You taught on it. Come on. Legion, the demon Legion was cast out in the Decapolis, all right? Um, there some people brought, so, and this is, by the way, a Gentile region, right? It's a Gentile region, but it's still inside of Israel, and that'll matter in a minute. Verse 32, there are some people brought, uh, some, there, are some, there are some people brought to him a man who was deaf and who could hardly talk. They, be, they begged Jesus to place his hand on him. After he took him aside, away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. Then he spit and touched the man's tongue. He looked up into heaven, and with a deep sigh, he said to him, Apatheta, I don't know, which means be open. By the way, that's Aramaic. So, um, 35. At this, the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. Jesus commanded uh, the man to not tell anyone, but... The more he did so, as so often happens in the Gospel of Mark, the more they kept talking about it. Verse 37, people, and this is the key, people were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. All right? So this is taking place in a Gentile region, right? And this is what, this is what really, really matters here. Um, so just to kind of unpack a little bit about what's happening, the whole, like, idea of, like, 
do you think spittle is a funny word? I think spittle is a funny word. All right, this, but that's what they always talk about. Do you not think spittle is a funny word? Am I just that immature? Okay. Um, all right. Thank you. That makes me feel good that all of you think this is hilarious. Um, so the way that they kind of conceived to spit is like, this is weird, but that it had like healing or like almost magical power, um, which is, you know, weird. Uh, and this man is, is deaf and mute. All right. So what is kind of happening, Jesus can't like talk to him and say, hey, I'm about to heal you. Right. Like Jesus can't have this conversation with him. Um, and so what he's and then also Jesus is looking up. So what's happening here is Jesus is using the spit to kind of communicate to this guy hey, I'm about to heal your ears and then your mouth, all right? Because, I mean, it's like, that's a, this is a weird little sequence that happens, right? Like, it's kind of odd. Like, if Jesus, like, came up, that, came up to you and did these things, you would not be comfortable with what he did, right? Like, you should nod your heads. Like, that is, it is odd. If, if any of us did that to someone else, like, that would not be, be okay in normal society. And then he's looking up to show this guy that this is coming from, from, from heaven above, right? This is coming from the Father, all right? So this is, all this is just kind of imagery to this guy of, of what's about to happen. The man gets healed, and the guy obviously doesn't shut up about it. And so everyone in the region begins to say in verse 37, he has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf, and, uh, the deaf hear and the mute speak. And that, that really matters, all right, because this is a Gentile region. And what this is referencing is two different parts of Isaiah that are talking about how the kingdom of God, right, which what did the, the Jews perceive the kingdom of God to be? What? Earthly. And what else? What kind of earthly kingdom is it going to be? They're going to, what's going to happen? Say it. They're going to overthrow Rome, right? This is not for the Gentiles. This is to kill the Gentiles. All right? So, um, but what's happening here? Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. The kingdom of God is for you. Isaiah chapter 29, verses 17 and 18. In a very short time, will not Lebanon, which is a Gentile region, by the way, that's going to matter for our text tonight. Uh, be turned into a fertile field, and this fertile field seemed like a forest. In that day, the deaf will hear, and the words of the scroll, and out of the gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind will see. You see the imagery here. Uh, in 35, verses 6 and uh, 7, I mean, verses 5 and 6, then the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then they will leap like deer, and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and the streams of the desert. By the way, earlier, yet again, Lebanon was referenced. All right, the reason Lebanon matters is our story tonight takes place in Lebanon. But what we see here is that the kingdom of God isn't not Lebanon, Tennessee, where Ben's from, and where Cracker Barrel was invented, but rather Lebanon, like in Africa. Um, all right, so now we can start our text for tonight, now that we have this very important information. All right. So, Mark chapter 7, verses 24 through 30. Remember, as we walk through this text, three questions. What are we learning about God? What are we learning about humanity? And what are we learning about the Christian faith? Let's pick up in verse 24. Jesus left that place. This is right after his spat with the Pharisees. And went to the vicinity of Tyre, by the way, which is in Lebanon. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it. All right, this is the first foreign trip of Jesus inside of the Gospel of Mark, right? So if you ever looked at one of the maps in your Bible and it's showing you Israel, this would take you off the map, right? This is the first time that would happen. He's taken off the map, all right? Um, he's getting away from the Pharisees and their shenanigans, and he wants to get what? He wants to... 
What does he want to do? Jesus left to rest. Thank you. Now, think about it for a second. If you're a Jew, where would Israel's Messiah work? Inside of Israel. And if he were to leave Israel, well, he is no longer needing to be the Messiah because he's not the Messiah for them. He's the Messiah for us. All right? So this is a great place if you're a Jew for Jesus to get some rest, right? Like in your brain, that makes total sense. All right? Pick up in the middle of verse 24. Yet, he could not keep his presence a secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia. All right. So, everything that Jesus was trying to avoid and that Jews would expect him to avoid in this region just happens, right? And it's not just that. It's not just that. But she, the person who ends up coming to Jesus, wanting some healing, wanting his attention, wanting his, his power, wanting his mercy and compassion, that person that has approached him is the person who is so, is, you cannot come up with any person in the Bible in, in, in this day and time, or their day and time, that would be further away from Jesus and, and a good Jew who would be clean and in right standing with Yahweh than this woman. I mean, almost everything about her uh, stands against her and her ability to talk to Jesus. First off, she is a, a Gentile. She's also a she. She's a woman. She's a Gentile woman. And her daughter has a what? A demon. As they put it, think in the terms we've been talking about, clean and unclean, pure and unpure. She has a daughter with an impure spirit. Furthermore, just to, just to kind of like ramp it up a little bit, Mark writes, she, the woman was a Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia. So it's not just that she's a Gentile woman with a daughter with an impure spirit talking to Jesus. It's not just that. All those things are against her. She's totally unclean. She shouldn't be approaching a Jewish rabbi. It's not just that. But she's a Greek from Syrian Phoenicia. Syrian Phoenicia is this place that is called out by Old Testament prophets, basically left and right, and as well as in the Psalms, as this tormentor of Israel. It is the home of Queen Jezebel. Do we know Jezebel? Can we raise hands? Just to, all right, there we go. We know Jezebel. Who killed Israel's prophets and also tried to kill the prophet Elijah. All right, First Kings like 16 through 18 kind of tell the story of how she's trying to do that. Um, but also that this is, a, this is a place that constantly, constantly not just was killing their prophets, but was trying to lure Israel into idolatry, into to worship of false gods, all right? And so if you're a Jew and you hear that this woman, this Gentile pagan woman, a Greek from Syrian Phoenicia, and you hear that her daughter has an impure spirit, you know what your first thought is? Well, rightfully so. Of course she does. She deserves it. She's unclean. Of course her daughter would have an impure spirit. What else would mark their house? Pick up with that in mind in the middle of verse 26. Even against all these odds that she faces, she begs Jesus to drive the demon out of her. First, let the children eat all they want, he told her. 
It is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Is that what you expected Jesus to say? I was calling it verse 28 earlier. Obviously, it's 27. This is one of the hardest sayings of Jesus. There are three really bad ways to interpret this, this verse. Let me play them out for you very quickly. Um, one, some people seriously suggest this. One, one option is that Jesus is a racist and that he shares in the Jewish contempt for pagan Gentiles. All right, we can very quickly debunk this uh, because as we read the rest of the story, we'll see that he heals her daughter. Uh, and more so, he wouldn't find himself if he was a racist inside a Gentile's house and nor would he even talk to this woman. All right, he's about to engage in, in some deep conversation with her. Also, he wouldn't go to the Decapolis and heal this blind and deaf man. All right, that wouldn't have happened either. Second option, all right, he's not a racist. All right, I'm glad we marked that off. Jesus is not a racist. The point of tonight. Um, second, some people will suggest that grace is limited, that God's grace is somehow limited, and that it's kind of like the zero-sum game, that if if he heals this, this Syrian Phoenician woman, there's some Jew in Israel that doesn't also get healed, right? Like the, the, the mercy that God has is somehow limited inside of Jesus, so if he gives it to this woman, you know, he can't give it to somebody else. Yet again, that, that is this, um, this horrible interpretation. Um, what was the imagery that's used there? Breadcrumbs, right? What did Jesus do just a little bit earlier with bread? Someone say it. Yeah, they fed the 5,000. All right. Jesus has unlimited bread, and the imagery here is therefore has unlimited mercy. All right. We are not playing a zero-sum game, right? We're not playing a zero-sum game. Third, Jesus is joking. Now, this one's pretty tempting for me. All right. I like to think that Jesus was sarcastic and that Jesus was just kind of sarcastically saying this to this woman. Um... The, the kind of whole narrative, though, doesn't really blend itself to that. Um, and, and even if, if Jesus is joking, you still have to kind of ask the question, well, is this a serious joke or is it like a not serious joke where he's kind of like saying this and being like, ha-ha, or he's saying this and he's like, yeah, but I really mean it, right? It doesn't really solve the tension that we find ourselves in, right? Jesus just called this woman a dog. Now, Jews often called gentiles dogs but jesus uses a phrase that they would not use now there there, there are two different types uh two words for dogs for for, for them um the first use and this is the more common one I, if you've ever been to like a third world country um or a developing you know country uh have you and you've seen like dogs there and a lot of them just got to live on the streets has anyone experienced that all right um and that's the first word. That's what they're talking about. And that's what Jews often called Gentiles. There's that street dog, right? It's not a home. It's not, it's not Theo, okay? It's not Theo. It's not Andy. It's not Claire. It's not any of those dogs. It's, it's a street dog, all right? But Jesus uses the phrase little puppy house dog, okay? So he's literally talking about like Theo and Andy and Claire. Like that's what he's referring to it as. So it is a little bit softer. And, and here's the thing, right? He's still calling them a dog. So that's like seemingly offensive. But if we contrast it to what they call dogs, he's like, no, you're more apart than you may think. I'm a Jew. You expect me to call you a street dog. I'm saying, hey, you have a chance. Also, yet again, just pay attention to what Jesus says. He says, first, he says, first, let the children eat all they want. For it is right, not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their puppies. 
they're still going to get fed. All right? They're still going to get fed. I mean, think about this for a second. This story is about a woman with a daughter who has a demon-possessed or uh, daughter um, or, you know, has an impure spirit. But Mark talks almost none about the daughter and the impure spirit. This story is not in the text, right? Mark is the shortest of all the Gospels, so he's very picky and choosy with what he includes. He doesn't include this story because of the impure spirit, but he includes it because of the conversation that they're about to have. In other words, there's a lot of theological weight inside of this conversation. Jesus' mission was to the Jews. He's fulfilling their laws. He's fulfilling their prophets. He's fulfilling their hopes. He's fulfilling their dreams. In other words, God keeps his promises to his people, and we should actually take that as very good news. But notice when he says first, that's a street dog. But notice when he says first, he's implying that this isn't about either or, but about sequencing, right? This story actually finds itself in the middle of two feedings. We read about the feeding of the 5,000. That was to Jewish men who wanted to revolt. The next feeding is actually what we're going to talk about next week. It's at the beginning of chapter 8. And it is to 4,000 Gentile men. Do you see the imagery there? You first feed the Jews and then the Gentiles. This is about sequencing. This is something that we see all over Scripture. Let me just take you to Romans chapter 1, verse 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. This is Paul writing to the church in Rome. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because of the, it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. And we usually stop right there. But the second half of 16 is first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. Maybe the best way I know to put it is... Um, Whenever we have all of you to our house, uh, we have the students over to our house. This happened very recently, uh, a couple Sundays ago. Um, Mary Beth and I always expect one person to show up a little bit early. That's Logan. And Logan walks in our door, probably without knocking. Do you knock? Not usually. Not usually. Logan walks into our door and he says, the best friends always show up to a party early. That's what's happening here. This woman is showing up to the party early. She was invited at six and she showed up at five. All right? Does that make sense? It isn't that Jesus does not have compassion and mercy for the Gentiles. It's just that I've come to the promised people of God. I have to fulfill the promises God made to them first. Well, let's pick up in verse 28 and see how she responds. Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. This is the only time in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus is addressed as Lord by another person inside the narrative. Mark will call him Lord, but only time inside this entire narrative that someone else calls him Lord. And it's out of the mouth of a Syrian Phoenician woman who has a daughter with an impure spirit. So Automatically, what she's doing is she's humbling herself. There's a there's a parallel um, passage in in the Gospel of Matthew, and she says, "Lord, Son of David." In other words, she really gets it. 
I know exactly who you are. And some will say that this is this witty response, and because it's such a witty response, Jesus can't help himself. But more so than being a witty response, what we see here is this woman embodies humility. She embodies a posture of humility as she approaches Jesus. And by the way, I mean, just think about this. Um, we often don't have clarity of thought because we ha don't have humility, right? It takes us a long time to think of response to something because we have our own preconceived notions uh, with our pride about the way things should be. And so when someone interjects in that, and they're, you know, then you're like, you have to almost, un you have to do deconstruction before you can like start thinking positively again. This woman comes with no pretense to Jesus. She comes with this posture of humility. So she's able to say, you're right, Lord. I am a dog. I still get crumbs, don't I? you get that? You see this posture of humility and how that allows her to respond to Jesus in this way. So let's pick up verse 29. Then he told her, for such a reply, you may go to the demon. Uh, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. Verse 30, she went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. All right. So as we've immersed ourselves in this story, right? Three questions. What do you learn about God? What do you learn about humanity? And what have you learned about the Christian faith? I want you to actually answer this like out loud and try to talk loud so that people can hear you. So yeah, like this sense of like, God is a God of promise, but it isn't just that God is a God of promise. He is faithful to those promises and he will not let those go. Yeah. What else? It's great. The impurity was gone by the end. She was made clean. And so her, through her family. And she, before anyone else in the Gospel of Mark, gets it. Right? It's great. What else? Which, by the way, sorry, if you go back to that verse in Romans, right? I'm not ashamed of the Gospel because the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. What does she do? She believes in him, right? She put her total faith and trust in him. Right. Keep going. This is great. What else? We see this expansiveness to God's mercy. It knows no bounds, right? It knows no bounds. Everyone has has access and availability to it. Right. What else? What do you learn about humanity and the Christian faith as well? Everyone's answer about God, it's great. And you can still answer that. But what do you learn about humanity and the Christian faith?
Yep. Peter has to have this full vision in Acts from God of like the unclean animals and like basically take and eat, you can eat all of them. And even after that, he still messes up with this, right? Um, which, by the way, Peter, yeah, as, as Ben was telling us, is the one who passed all these stories on to Mark. And is someone who we would still hold as, as, as a, he's a paragon of faith, someone that we should emulate. That's just like the, the amount of grace that God has, not just for outsiders, but for those of us who mess up on the inside, should also be really encouraging, right? Really encouraging. So yeah, thanks, thanks for bringing that up. What else? That's great. That's really good. Come on, you got this. What do you learn about the Christian faith? All right, I'll go. Okay, let me, let me just answer each of these questions really quickly, and then we'll split you up into groups and have you pray over one another. Um, we've already kind of brought this up, but um, the love of God, the mercy of God, knows no bounds, right? These, all these stories inside of this, right, whether it be the you know, pure versus impure that Ben was talking about last week, and now, like, clean makes unclean clean, right? Or the, the story of the Syrian Phoenician woman who has no right. I mean, she, like, you cannot imagine anyone. I mean, I want you to imagine someone, the, the person, the, the group of people maybe who you imagine to be the furthest away from God. Picture those people. Whoever you think are, like, just intrinsically as a group of people are maybe the most far away from God. That's who these people are. That's who this woman is. And Jesus still has mercy on them. Think about your own life. Think about the things in your life that you feel like you've done, that you have shame about, that you have guilt about, that you think have driven a wedge in between you and God. Maybe it's your family history. Maybe it's your um, past uh, things, things that have happened in your past, things that have happened to you, things that you've done. Maybe it's sexual sin. Sexual sin is one of those sins that often just carries with it such guilt and shame. That was funny. Whoever's laughing hard. Um, think about just all the different things in your life that you feel like have driven a wedge between you and God. If Jesus can have mercy on a Syrian Phoenician woman, the descendant of Jezebel, who kills the prophets of God, he can have mercy on you. 
No questions asked. If she gets to be around the table, so do you. The grace and mercy and love of God knows no bounds. Secondly, what do we learn about humanity? I think what we learn about humanity is that we tend to demonize the other when we often shouldn't. Yet again, I want you to think of that same exact group. The group of people that you perceive to be so far away from God. So the group of people that have chosen, that have chosen over time to wedge them, uh, to, to put a wedge between them and Yahweh. Imagine them. They too have grace and mercy available to them if they're willing to come to Jesus. No questions asked. The groups that we demonize, Jesus shows mercy on. No questions asked. Third, what do we learn about the Christian faith? Well, I think what we learn about the Christian faith is that the Christian faith, faith in Christ, Lord, Son of David, takes the shape of humility, takes a posture of humility. What pride and arrogance do we all hold? What pride and arrogance do you hold that is keeping you from doing what this Syrian Phoenician woman did? Throwing yourself at the mercy of Jesus and asking for healing. Right? Think about the things in your life that, 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 that are harming you, that are plaguing you, that are, that are that, you know, the sin, uh, the, the, the frustrations, the, 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 the past trauma that you have. Think about all those things. And, and think about the pride that you have that won't allow you, that won't allow you to bring those things to Jesus and say, Jesus, please heal me. Get rid of this impure spirit. What are the things, I mean, what are the things that, have us be like this, that, that keep us from being like this Syrian Phoenician woman. What are the things that keep us from being willing to be called a dog? Recognizing that we're not really worthy, but we still get to be at the table. And by the way, I think one of the, the, the reasons this is so difficult is because we live in a culture that is saturated in social media, and social media is saturated in perfectionism. When you look at someone's social media feed, all you see is the perfect aspects of their life. Right? And when we see that, we think we too then have to be perfect. And then we translate that somehow to God. But the good news, right, the good news of this story, the good news of the Christian faith, is that we don't have the same transactional relationships that the world has. When we come having to be perfect to present ourselves to society, that's not the narrative that we see here, is it? But rather, we just get to throw ourselves, Syrian Phoenician woman, dog, undeserving, at the mercy of Jesus, with a posture of humility, and we just get to accept the mercy that God shows us. What I want us to do to close out tonight uh, is break up into groups, and I want you to ask these two questions. They aren't about humility, but I think they're going to take a lot of humility for us to answer and answer well. The first is this. What is one area of your life where you think that you have a wedge between you and God? 
And how can God overcome that? Or how can you allow God to overcome that? How can you embody a posture of humility so that that is no longer a wedge, right? So what is that one area of your life where you feel like there's a wedge between you and God, right? Secondly, name a group of people that you think are unworthy of God's mercy. Right, this is a hard question. This one's going to take humility. Name a group of people and then pray for them. 